Hayard. I'm Elton Smollett, and welcome again to the Kiskea podcast. Today, we are discussing the island of Cuba. Yes. And do you want to share our guest? So today, we have a special guest on the program, Yvonne Vasquez. He is a researcher at the University of Havana in Cuba. I met him during my semester abroad while I was conducting a research project through the university uh, and we've kept in touch and he agreed to come on the podcast today to answer some historical questions and questions regarding the legacy of Cuba's colonial past in the current society. Additionally, reading the translations of Yvonne's answers, we have Antonio Pineda, who generously contributed his voice. So we've prepared a number of questions, and why don't you ask the first one? All right. So yeah, thank you for joining us, Yvonne. Let's begin with some historical background on the colonial history of Cuba and the Caribbean. To understand how the foreign policy of the United States has affected Cuba in comparison with European colonialism, one must keep in mind that throughout many centuries the history of Cuba has been marked by extensive interests of grand colonial and imperial powers aiming to dominate the territory of Cuba. As early as 1492, the first Spanish explorers arrived on the eastern shores of Cuba. This is the moment which history refers to as the discovery, which actually consisted of an encounter between two cultures. The Spanish culture, which had arrived for the first time to the lands of the American continent, and the culture of the indigenous people who had already been inhabiting the numerous islands which formed the Caribbean Sea. Once they had arrived, the Spanish took to the task of conquering the land of Cuba, a conquest which was marked by the use of violent, repressive methods towards the original population, who had shown determined levels of resistance against the presence of the foreigners who had arrived on our coast. Once the conquest had been completed, and with some understanding of the territory that formed this island, the Spanish continued on to the task of developing a long process of colonization, which was characterized by the foundation of numerous vias for the development of economic activity, which did not reach until approximately the year 1762, a high degree of development, but which were activities that remained to grow incrementally in importance. Among these activities, there was the development of raising livestock, the development of agriculture, as well as the exploitation of a few natural resources among what was to be found throughout the forests of the island of Cuba. However, one of the characteristics of the colonial process of the Spanish in Cuba was the development of the economy on the base of slave labor. By 1760, the economy of the island of Cuba had already experienced vast economic growth from the establishment of a commercial monopoly by the Spanish administration. Once Havana had been taken by the British, the British made evident the possibilities of commercial growth, and in 1763, the capital city once again recovered by the Spanish, they continued the promotion of this commercial and economic expansion, which provided numerous dividends to the Spanish crown. So how did the, this colonial history affect the economic development of Cuba? 
From this moment, the Cuban economy experienced an ascent that was not just by the establishment of the free market inside and outside of the island, but which also produced the vast sugar plantations as a fundamental economic model within the agriculture of the island of Cuba. These vast sugar plantations were sustained by the work of enslaved African people. Thus, these dividends received by the Spanish crown from large-scale sugar production was sustained by the violent extraction of a large portion of the population of the peoples who comprised the African continent to be utilized in American lands, and specifically the Cuban case, in the development of economic interests of the European colonizers, and specifically the Spanish in Cuba. This process of sugar production was succeeded by a crisis in the colonial model of production, which depended on slave labor, which was also, by the end of the 18th century, accompanied by emergence of Cuban economic thought and sentiments of nationalism and identity among a population that began feeling more and more Cuban. It was a process that developed, above all, from the beginning of the 19th century and that had its crystallization, its tipping point with the start of the War of Independence in 1868 and continued over the course of the rest of the 19th century. Already in these conditions, the Spanish colonial model was already in crisis and was exhibiting symptoms of exhaustion, which was also challenged by the War of Independence, which lasted approximately 30 years. It fell short of maintaining the Creole class in good conditions, a class which had already resembled the Cuban bourgeoisie and which no longer conformed to only have some quotas of economic power, but which now also worked to have autonomy, equally determined quotas, satisfaction of their interests, and decision-making power in the political sphere, an issue towards which the Spanish had showed themselves to be reluctant. Although there were a few periods of concessions, the Spanish immovably maintained, in essence, this dogmatic model of repressive methods, this model which limited those aspirations of the class with great economic power, which was already consolidating in Cuba. The interests of this class, but also the interests of an important broader portion of the Cuban population, which both filled a different island, so to speak, in different political, economic, and social conditions permitted the development of the economy of society and conditions of freedom and independence. What aspects of history still have lasting effects in the society and culture of Cuba? We could say that the colonial domination of the Spanish leaves us a culture which we still conserve as Cubans, a culture formed not only by Hispanics, not only by Africans who were brought here to Cuba through violent means, but was also formed by aspects of Asian culture, of the culture of the Middle East, which enriched Cuban culture. Equally, the colonial domination of the Spanish left us with language, cuisine, architecture, customs, and the ways that Cubans have been over the course of centuries and in the way that Cubans still are today. Nonetheless, the domination of the Spanish also left negative aspects, such as the formation of a society that was profoundly divided by class, a society which was also characterized by differences in the color of one's skin, the ideology of racism, and the manifestations of racial discrimination, principally against the black and mixed populations of Cuba, but also to Asian Americans and to whites who did not have economic power. These were some of the negative aspects that were left by Spanish colonial domination in Cuba. And so how does this history compare to the way Cuba was influenced by the United States' foreign policy after gaining independence from Spain? 
Cuba was also affected by foreign policy of the United States government from the latter end of the 18th century. Some of the representatives of the North American political administration had already begun or had already expressed their interest in dominating the territory of Cuba. In the first few decades of the 19th century, in maps of the United States territory, they included the island of Cuba. By 1923, the interest of North American politicians in dominating the island of Cuba was made explicit. This came with the establishment of the Monroe Doctrine and the politics of ripe fruit. Throughout the 19th century, the politicians of the United States, on multiple occasions, tried to buy the island of Cuba from Spain. However, Spain continuously refused to sell it. The process of Cuban independence, which had already begun in 1868, never received recognition from the North American authorities who opted to maintain a policy of neutrality, but which actually explicitly hid their interests because Cuba had not yet achieved independence, and upon leaving Spanish control, according the politicians of the United States, Cuba should end up under the domain of the imperial power of the United States. Towards the end of the 19th century, Cuba, under the leadership of Jose Marti, began the last of their wars of independence, which Marti named a necessary war, a war which needed to be quick, which needed to be effective, to give the final blow of the pro-independence forces to the colonial Spanish government. In 1898, after three years of confrontation, and after the Cuban forces had achieved important victories, and after 30 years of combat, the interests of the United States manifested through the military intervention in the conflict between Cuba and Spain, a military intervention which frustrated the Cuban independence. It was from this point that the government of the United States, with the effective dominion of Cuba from a political point of view, began to launch all their policies and interests as Spain leaves the administration of Cuba. To the frustration of the Cuban independence effort, in 1898, with the military intervention from North America, there passed a few years in which the United States did not permit that Cuba was in independent until it met the condition that Cuba supposedly became capable of self-determination. Between 1899, which is the formal beginning of the United States military intervention in Cuba, until 1902, when the first Cuban Republic was founded, the United States launched a policy to guarantee their permanent dominion over Cuban territories. In this period, they renovated institutions, they modified laws, and of course they implemented a series of mechanisms that permitted the United States to perpetrate the capital, as well as the companies of Cuba. Of course, the United States, its policies and its military proposed to deactivate the Cuban pro-independence forces to neutralize the principal veterans of the Cuban wars of independence who had an anti-imperialist vision which could subvert the United States' interest to some extent. In 1901, a new constitution for Cuba was proposed and confirmed, but, it, but included in it was an amendment which was included by the United States as a condition for Cuba to become, at least apparently, independent. In this way, the new Cuban constitution that was approved in 1901 contained what is known as a Platt Amendment. This obligated Cuba to comply with a series of compromises with the United States, and it permitted the United States, under certain conditions, which could supposedly put its interests at risk, to intervene in all spheres of Cuban life, economically, politically, or from a social point of view. Thus, with the beginning of the 20th century, the greatest effects of the United States foreign policy is felt by Cuba. 
Throughout the first half of the 20th century, then, all of Cuban reality found itself affected and influenced by the interests of the United States. What characterized the governments of Cuba during this period of influence from the United States? The political governments of Cuba, who followed in this first half of the 20th century, all had to deal with the constraints of the United States foreign policy. These Cuban governments, from Tomás Estrada Palma, who was the first president as of 1902, with the formation of the Republic, are characterized, among other things, by their facilitation of the United States financial and commercial penetration of the Cuban capital. They're equally characterized by a profound political corruption, by a disregard for the fundamental necessities of the Cuban people, and by facilitating the United States intervention in all matters of Cuban political life. Equally, by the beginning of the 20th century, a series of commercial treaties were signed with the United States that burdened the Cuban economy, an economy which had already been affected by the Spanish colonial system and by more than 30 years of war between the Spanish government and the Cuban pro-independence forces. It was also an economy which had come from the slave plantation model for the production of sugar, but by the 20th century was an economy that would modernize in a number of ways, above all from an industrial point of view, but which would also function for the interests of the United States, would be a single producer and single exporter, and would remain fundamentally centered on the continued development of the sugar industry to the detriment of other economic sectors, which would also be necessary for the economic prosperity of the country. In the same vein, the United States government pressured Cuba to sign treaties allowing for the establishment of U.S. naval bases in Cuba, which won them the naval base at Guantanamo Bay, territory which belongs to the province of Guantanamo in Cuba, but which remains under the dominion of the United States. All of this resulted in the Cuban economy being characterized by development of the capitalist mode of production, but tending towards the underdevelopment and structural deformation of the Cuban economy in order to serve another nation's interests, in this case the United States. This also made Cuba a nation with a debilitated political structure that was dependent on the influence of the United States imperialist foreign policy interests. This also led to the Cuban government being fundamentally characterized by administrative corruption, by the use of violence, and by anti-popular methods. I can present two examples among others. There's the case of the government of Gerardo Machado y Morales, who left power after the socialist protest movement organized by students and workers. The idea of socialism formed a few political organizations in the 1930s, and once again power shifted in 1952 with a coup d'etat from the dictator Fulgencio Batista, who would remain in power until 1958. His politics were distinguished by the use of violence against the social movements which were working towards Cuba's return to the path of democratic elections and the satisfaction of the population's needs. So from this historical context, how did these events lead to the Cuban Revolution? From this context arose the young movement led by Fidel Castro Ruz, which proposed to revert the situation to an armed struggle. Thus, an assault was organized against the Mocada barracks located in the city of Santiago de Cuba, which was the second most important military fort in the country. Once the assault occurred, the movement was fractured, but it left the knowledge that there was a group of young people interested in improving the situation of Cuba. Some of them were killed in the attack on Moncada, 
and others were imprisoned. Fidel Castro and others who had attacked Moncada alongside him wrote in his defense a document titled History Will Absolve Me, a document in which he justified and argued for the measures that needed to be taken regarding Cuba's precarious position, such as replacing the current government to therefore benefit the Cuban reality. How did the United States react to the Cuban Revolution and how did this influence Cuba? Precisely on the triumph of the revolution on the 1st of January 1959, the revolutionary government began to implement these measures. Among them, one of the first was agrarian reform. A large portion of the fertile land in Cuba was in the hands of the North American monopolies, and this first step of agrarian reform the government of the United States began to apply restrictive measures towards the Cuban government and people. The economic embargo began in February of 1962 and was the fundamental confrontation of the United States foreign policy against Cuba. It is designed to suffocate the Cuban revolutionary government and with it its population in order to destimulate the popular support of the revolutionary government and of course rendering much of Cuba's inhabitants hungry. It is considered one of the most prolonged economic embargoes in human history. It influences and affects almost all spheres of daily life in Cuba. The economic embargo affects health, nutrition, housing, and the commercial relations not only of Cuba and the United States, but of Cuba and the rest of the countries in the world. Between the years of 1992 and 1996, along with the Torricelli Law and the Helms-Burton Act, respectively. The embargo retained a legal character and was no longer just the prerogative of the President of the United States, but was now in the hands of the United States Congress. The embargo truly has important impacts in all sectors of Cuban life. It is calculated that the harm done by the embargo is in the billions of dollars. Equally, there is the cost of the lack of access to many commodities, technologies, and foodstuffs such that if the embargo did not exist, Cubans would have been able to have a very different economic and social development under normal conditions of development than many other countries in the region have. social diferente, más próspero y en condiciones de desarrollo normales como las que tienen muchos países de nuestra región. Thanks so much Yvonne for joining us and for your insight on all of this historical context and the way it still leaves its traces today. And thank you to all our listeners for tuning in. I'm Elson Smollett. Thank you for tuning in. My name is Chris Agard. And this has been Kiskeya Podcast. See you next time. <laughs>